Hello, everybody. You're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is Associate Professor at the Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing, Dr. Allison Holman. Dr. Holman's robust program of research focuses on the interface between mental and physical health consequences from exposure to trauma and trauma's follow-up media coverage. A large body of her work was after 9-11 and after the Boston Marathon bombings, where she looked at and tried to understand how media exposure is associated with people's responses psychologically and physically. She believes healthcare providers need to make sure that people understand the potential negative consequences of too much media dissemination live over and over and over. And we'll explore that and how it applies to COVID-19 in the situation today. Welcome, Professor Holman. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks for being with us. Certainly, your research is very topical in today's environment. So if you could maybe just open up by telling us about the mental issues with constant media coverage on a national and international scale. Sure. In reference to, well, it depends on which events you're referring to, but if you're thinking about COVID-19 specifically, uh, okay. Um, So I view COVID-19 as a global collective stressor. And it is an event that is, uh, it's not just one event, it's a series of events that human that we are all experiencing, and it involves the stressor of this invisible virus. We can't see it with our eyes, but it's there. It creates an uncertain and ambiguous kind of situation for us because you're not really sure what you should be doing to protect yourself all the time and mm-hmm. whether it's there and all of that. So it creates a bit of a difficulty, and and a lot of that ambiguity makes people want to find out more information. So they often go to the media to find out more information about events that are they're worried about, that they're concerned about. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of people are engaging with the media about COVID-19, about the coronavirus and where it is and what it's doing. And while I totally think it is great for people to stay on top of and understand what's going on in the world around them, it's also equally important, if not more important, that they not overwhelm themselves with the media exposure. What we've seen in our research after 9-11 and after the Boston Marathon bombing is that when people expose themselves to large amounts of media related to those events, hours and hours a day. So like six, seven, eight, nine hours a day of media exposure across various platforms. Like it could be your phone, it could be your computer, it could be an iPad, whatever. When people expose themselves to multiple hours, many, many hours of media coverage, they're at greater risk for experiencing what's called acute stress. Acute stress is early post-traumatic stress symptoms. And those acute stress symptoms in my research have been associated with subsequent mental and physical health problems. So acute stress in their 9-11 study was associated with 
increased risk for developing nuanced cardiovascular ailments, having a doctor diagnose you with nuanced cardiovascular ailments. So the media can have some very significant impacts on our health and well-being. And it's not just the amount of media that you experience, it's also what you see. I recently published a paper where we looked at both the amount of media and what you saw. And what we identified in that paper, and this is from data in our Boston Marathon bombing study, what we identified was that what you saw in terms of like the, the nature of the pictures, so graphic media exposures, so pictures that included images of people with blood, those images associated with increased mental health symptoms six months later and poor functioning six months later indirectly. And so it's really important to realize that even though we don't know that these things are happening to us when we're actually looking at it, we may not recognize, oh, this is making me more stressed. We may not connect the media to that in our minds. The fact of the matter is it appears that it's happening to people and a lot of people and it's happening in a lot of situations. So we've seen it after, as I said, 9-11, Boston Marathon bombings, Orlando nightclub shooting, et cetera, Ebola, you name it. We see it after a lot of these events. And so it's really important not to overdo the media. Is the way to neutralize that literally just don't turn on the TV? Do you have suggestions on how to neutralize it? Yeah, I do. First of all, I think the most important thing is to recognize what sources of media are engaging in the most sensationalistic forms of reporting and pretty much avoid the sensationalism. You want to avoid people who get into these hyperbolic arguments and yelling at each other and all that stuff because, you know, sensationalistic media is like the clickbait that you see on social media. It's there to engage you emotionally and to draw you in and to get you to stay there. That stuff is not so great. So I would recommend, here's, here's my best recommendation. Yeah. Pick a couple of really reliable and more balanced, neutral media sources. Could be the World Health Organization, could be Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource page, could be CDC. Places where they just tell you the facts, just the facts, ma'am, and not a bunch of, you know, sensationalistic opinionating on top of that. So find those sites, go to them once or maximum twice a day just to find out what's going on, but don't spend a lot of time. Spend less time than you might think you need. Just get the basic information you need and then leave that site and go do other things. And so you're monitoring your uh, media intake and making sure you don't overdo it is really important. And the way to do that is to pick really trustworthy, reliable sites, but use them in a limited way. Are you recognizing signs where people are just consuming too much media? I mean, I got to say, I, I feel it. I can feel it in my body. It's like, it's too much. You know, sometimes my wife and I will just like, we're not going to turn on the TV right now. Or sometimes in the morning when we get up, just don't feel like turning the TV on this morning. Right. Are you seeing any signs of that in our community or in our society? Or is it hard to see it in real time? Is it after the fact that you see it? 
Well, we're currently running a study where we are assessing how much media exposure people are getting. And we will have some hard data about that in the coming weeks that mm. I can answer with facts from our study. However, anecdotally, yeah, I mean, lots of people are going to the media a lot. And there's a variety of ways that people are engaging with the media and, you know, media sites have crashed. For example, the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center page has crashed because so many people are going there to find out how many people have had have been diagnosed and where have they been diagnosed and how many people have died. And so people are definitely using the media to find out what's going on. And that's a natural thing for people to do. But as I said, it's important for people to monitor that and not overdo it. Eventually we'll be able to give people some hard data about how much media exposure people are engaging in the aftermath of this event or while this is happening, actually. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty evident. And, and like you, I mean, I find myself, I, I keep reading it. And the more I see, the more I sometimes hit a wall. I can't see anymore. I can't look anymore. And as somebody that studies media and response to disasters, I think I expose myself too much to it. Mm -hmm. But that's because I'm trying to understand what is the media saying and how is what the media is saying, how is that likely to affect people? And that's a really important thing, too, because what we're finding is uh, you and many Americans have found and many people around the world have found what's being said is very contradictory. When you see with press briefings that take place in this country, you see, you know, Anthony Fauci up there, the head of the CDC up there talking about what, you know, is going on and then other people get up and say other things. It can be very confusing when you have different, you have different news channels saying one thing and another one saying another. Uh, right. It's been a confusing road for people. It's very confusing for, for people. And that confusion and conflicting information that people spread via the media, that actually is worse for people. And it's not good for people. In some previous work that one of my colleagues has done, he showed that conflicting information about a major event it actually is associated with greater distress in people. So that's why I say find the facts, go to the place that is talking about what's really going on, and that's why I'm mentioning Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center page and the World Health Organization and the CDC. Use those. The other thing I want to comment on about them is that I think it's important to recognize that this event has unfolded over time so fast. You know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, seems like a year ago. It does. It's amazing how time, our sense of time has shifted with this pandemic. And so what we're seeing in the media as it unfolds, it's changing. And some of that's because the science is being done so fast and we're learning more things. And so what we thought was the case once, a week, two weeks later, it might not be the case anymore. It might be something different. And one of the concerns that some people have raised with me is, you know, well, at first the CDC was saying, don't wear masks. You don't need to wear masks unless you're sick or unless you're a healthcare worker. Well, now they're saying everybody should wear masks when we go out in public. Well, yes, there's a reason for that. One of the reasons for that is that some science has been published in the interim showing that the coronavirus itself 
can actually, it can be the coughs and the sneezes that people have can actually spread the coronavirus farther than the six foot, quote, social distancing measure that we have been using. And so wearing a mask can potentially protect your face from receiving some of those. More importantly, if you cough or sneeze and you don't know you have the coronavirus, if you cough or sneeze and you've got a mask on, the mask helps to stop you from spraying other people. So it has a protective effect in the public sphere, but we just learned some of this. Some of this is new information. And so I hear people being frustrated that once we were being told not to wear them, now we're being told to wear them. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, as science changes, as scientists work very hard to make sure that they're up to date and know what's going on with this virus, new information is going to come out. And so it's going to make it a little bit difficult sometimes for people to understand why things change. But I would encourage them to recognize that science sometimes helps us understand more and that changes our way of looking at things. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think everybody is in the same boat, whether you're a professional in research, whether you're like me trying to do interviews about it, you're trying to get your arms around it. And at some point I finally realized I'm not going to. You learn what you can and then you just, it's more than 24 seven. No human being can possibly have their arms around the whole thing. It, it, did, it's a bit of a monster. It's yeah. a bit of a monster. And as I said, I think it's a very beginning it is like a chronic, it's chronic, and I, I don't want to say slow moving because it's kind of fast moving, but it's a fat, but it's a, it's a chronic stressor that's punctuated by acute stressors for people. So it could be punctuated by a, a wave of more deaths in your neighborhood or your community, and it could be punctuated by, for health professionals, by you know, they're trying to get their, all of a sudden their hospital is getting a whole wave of new patients and they're having to cope with that. So it's a chronic form of stress that everybody's living with, but it's being punctuated by these episodes of acute stress that are making it hard for people to cope. And I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are doing a phenomenal job of coping with this in particular, a lot of health providers and a lot of the essential workers who are still going to work and making sure that the rest of us have a grocery store to go to or whatever. Tip my hat to all of them. I say thank you, you know, because you're doing us a great service and I really hope that we can protect you. It's a shame that we aren't protecting our healthcare workers and, and essential workers better than we are, especially given our role in the world. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor. Uh, just want to give a, a station ID and update our listeners. If you joined us late, you're yep. listening to U UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest today is Associate Professor of Nursing, Dr. Allison Holman. Her expertise is in the effects of mass media traumatic events like the one we're experiencing at the moment with COVID-19. Professor, you're acknowledging our healthcare workers and professionals. It's just unbelievable. Actually, there's a married couple in my neighborhood. One's a dentist and the other one's a um, cardiac doctor. And they were practicing social distancing. And I said a little bit of a joke. I was just thinking of them as neighbors and not as doctors. And then afterwards, I'm like, oh, my God. I'm sure they're probably sleeping in different rooms just because they're distancing themselves under the circumstances. So 
it's just amazing what healthcare professionals are doing for us and really putting it all on the line. People back east, we, we've had deaths from our healthcare workers. Hats That's off absolutely to right. Can you talk a little bit more about the impact of this event on our healthcare professionals? Sure. So I've been in touch with some of my colleagues and what's been described to me and what I've heard, the stories that that I've heard about news, uh, health professionals so far, there's a lot of free-floating anxiety, just not knowing. For some people, in some places, it's, it's just this overwhelming sense of just kind of like anxiety that you don't really know what to do with. It's kind of, you know that COVID-19 is a serious thing, but and you know it's going to hit if it hasn't hit already. You know you may get more patients, but you just it's just a sort of generalized anxiety that a lot of people have report, have said they've been feeling. The other thing that is noticeable, and I think it's important to pay attention to, is that in New York, where healthcare workers have been particularly hit hard, we're seeing health workers protest. They're out there with signs saying, give us PPE, we need PPE. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's actually quite, well, I use the word shameful, but I really do feel like it's a shame that America wasn't more prepared for this pandemic. And it's a shame that we had, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, we had a pandemic response team in place in various government agencies. And when this hit, it wasn't there anymore. It's a shame that it didn't have plans in place for how to address the needs of PPE in a pandemic. So all of those things, it's a frustration and anger on the part of some health professionals who are saying, we need the PPE, and we're being asked to put our lives on the line without protection. And there were stories about some health workers having to use garbage bags instead of the protective gowns and reusing their masks, spraying their masks. And it's crazy to put healthcare workers, the people who are specifically tasked with helping us take care of and get through this crisis in a very intimate way. They're the ones that will save our lives, and yet we aren't finding a way to save theirs. And that, to me, is a very sad and very shameful thing that we are doing. And I just say that the bravery and the passion of the healthcare workers is is astounding, and I tip my hat to them for what they're doing, and I thank them. But I do want to encourage people to think about how can you support the healthcare workers in your community? What can you do to support them? If there's ways that you, I know in, in my community, people are doing drives where they're gaining access to N95 masks and, and getting a lot of them to donate to the local hospital so everybody has them. And other people are actually making masks to share other people. And, and there, there are many ways that you can do it to help protect somebody. But things like if somebody needs grocery shopping, you can do some grocery shopping for somebody who may have to work a 14, 16, 20-hour shift, 24-hour shift. Help with groceries. Help with whatever it is you can help with. Try to help and show appreciation to the healthcare workers in your community and I think those things will go a long way. You know, there are ways that we can give back to the people who are giving so much to us right now 
with their work. Thank you for bringing that up. Why don't we step back a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about your research into 9-11? And maybe we'll talk about 9-11 first and then the Boston Marathon bombings. Sure. When the 9-11 attacks occurred, I was actually out of the country and I recognized immediately that it was a, an event worth studying because I saw how profoundly I was impacted and my family was impacted. Where were you, and I Professor? I was visiting family in Nigeria. Oh, okay. And so... How did you uh, find out? I was at the house of a family friend of my, my partner's and um, uh, an old professor of his. And so we were at his house and he had CNN on and we saw it on the TV. And I looked at it I, at the time. I looked at it and I said, oh, my God, what is Hollywood doing now? I literally thought it was a movie. And I thought that is way too close to home. Why are they doing that? Mm-hmm. Then the guy whose house we were at said, that is not Hollywood. That's actually happening. And I was shocked. Yeah. Anyway, so after 9-11, my colleagues and I conducted a study with a nationally representative sample of about almost 3,000 Americans. And we had, we worked with a survey research company that had already had before 9-11 had collected data from them about their mental and physical health. So we had data that had already been collected on them before Mm -hmm. 9-11 happened. So we knew what their mental and physical health status was before Mm 9-11. And then we we got um, collected data about their immediate responses to 9-11. So right after 9-11, 9 to 14 days for the most of them, Mm -hmm. 9 to 23 days for the whole sample. Mm -hmm. And we followed them. We collected those data, and then we collected data two months, six months, a year, 18 months, two years, and three years after 9-11 on the same sample over time. Wow. And what we were, we were looking at, yeah, it was a, a longitudinal, it's called a prospective longitudinal study. Mm-hmm. And what we were looking at was we were looking at early predictors of later on mental and physical health issues. Mm-hmm. What are the things that happened in, in, during 9-11 or in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 that may have helped us understand downstream impact. So we also had a measure right after 9-11 in our, when we measured acute stress, we also measured, had a measure of how much television exposure they had um, in the week following the attacks, how many hours a day they were watching television. And so we started to look at how these early responses of engaging with the media, but also more in the 9-11 study, we were less focused on the media and more focused on, I was more focused on the acute stress response, that mm-hmm. early response and looking at how that early response was, was playing out, what percentage of the population is reporting acute stress, how is it playing out over time? And I think I mentioned this earlier, but um, what I found in that study was uh, that Acute stress, high levels of acute stress were associated with increased incidence of new onset cardiovascular ailments over three years following 9-11. And the important piece of that was that the people who were at greatest risk for having those new onset cardiovascular ailments in the three years following 9-11 
and mind you, this is comparing before 9-11 levels of cardiovascular ailments to cardiovascular ailments, number of cardiovascular ailments they reported three years after 9-11. The, the, a critical piece in here was both, were both the acute stress levels, high acute stress, but also a year after 9-11, if they had a lot of fear about the future, a fear of future terrorist attacks, if their fear levels were very high, the people who had both that high acute stress and were very scared at the anniversary, those folks had the highest rates of new onset cardiovascular ailments post three years later. Theirs was between three to five, almost five-fold increased incidence of new onset cardiovascular ailments. It was remarkable. And this, the, the other piece I want to mention here is this study was conducted in a sample of Americans who the vast majority of them did not experience 9-11 up front. They weren't in the World Trade Center. They weren't even in New York. They were all over this country. It was a random sample of the American population. Mm-hmm. They were all over the place. And yet we still saw these changes. And mm-hmm. it really convinced me at the time that acute stress is a, is a really important early response if you want to, uh, to, to assess, if you want to understand how people, why people develop uh, uh, trauma-related health problems in the aftermath of a trauma exposure. So that was, you know, one of the things we looked at in the 9-11 study. We also looked at television, television rate, amount of television um, watching, and we did find that media exposure was associated with the acute stress. The media exposure and that uh, was also associated with new onset, with with increases. Let me say this: with increases in post-traumatic stress symptoms over three years, and um, was associated with increases in physical health ailments overall. Just all sources of physical health ailments. So. You know, we saw these effects in the 9-11 study and was pretty convincing that we had something really interesting going on there to, to continue studying. What are the symptoms of acute stress? Is blood pressure, I mean, that seems like one of the obvious ones, but are there others? Well, blood pressure isn't a symptom. Blood pressure is a sign in medical terminology, healthcare terminology. The symptoms of acute stress are basically early post-traumatic stress symptoms. So there are things like having intrusive thoughts about the event after it happened. It's being hypervigilant, feeling like on edge and aroused all the time because you're, you know, you're thinking about something. Or it's avoidant behavior where you're trying to avoid any reminders of the event because it's too scary. So you're staying away from reminders. And at the time, it was also what's called dissociative symptoms, where you sort of feel like you're in this surreal world and your sense of time slows down, where you have a sense of, it's not time slowing down so much as it's your future can feel a little bit foreshortened. Those are all signs of acute stress. It's basically early post-traumatic stress symptoms. That's what they are. Yeah. When did the post 9 11 stressors end. Did you see that in, in your research? Yeah, it's that first year or our society is still reacting to 9-11 events. Is it still there or do you look at that? Well, we haven't really looked at that specifically 
and we're, we're not specifically looking at that yet in our COVID-19 study. Mm. But yes, we have looked at, at the accumulation of exposures to events. And after our Boston Marathon bombing study, we did do an assessment of whether they had been exposed to 9-11 on television or live in person. And we did see that there's an accumulation of stress that can be experienced over time. And that is associated with, you know, greater distress after the next event that you experience. Mm. So, yeah, the the answer is yes. The, the stress of one event can actually feed into another one. But in terms of does the event itself continue? Well, the, the actual event is over, but in terms of 9-11, I mean, 9-11, ushered in an era that completely changed American mm. life mm. in many ways for many people. So, um, and there were many secondary stressors that people experienced, not unlike what we're feeling now, but at somewhat lesser a degree after nine 11, there was a jump in unemployment and then we got into a war and, you know, there were so many, secondary forms of stress that that occurred but that's actually very common i mean an event can sort of kick off a series of negative secondary stressors that that mm. tend to prolong mm. they tend to sort of accumulatively impact a person's ability to respond mm. over time mm. interesting how was your um the boston marathons bombing research was was that very similar or did you look at different things in that event? Well, it was similar except that in the Boston Marathon bombing study, we did a much more fine-grained assessment of the media. And so we actually, in that study, we had a fine-grained view of, of what are the different types of media that people are engaging with and in and a fine-grained version of of how many hours they did and what they saw, you know, what are the images they're looking at? And we did a much better assessment and analysis of how the media itself was associated with acute stress and other downstream types of health problems after the Boston Marathon bombing, health, mental, and physical health problems after the Boston Marathon bombing. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor. If you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I am UCI Conversations host Kevin Bossemeyer, and I'm with Professor of Nursing, Dr. Allison Holman. Her research is in the area of mental and physical distress from constant media coverage of traumatic events. So this event, COVID-19, this is the first time I thought about it, but it seems like a world war type of event where it's uh, you know, literally the, the whole world. Yes, it is. It is. It is the biggest event of my lifetime. That's mm-hmm. for sure. And it's, and it's going to be going on for quite a while. It really, you know, initially when it rolled out, I think people thought that maybe it would be a couple weeks, maybe a few months, but as time goes on, it just keeps getting bigger and, and a longer time frame. Right. And again, some of that's because we're learning more stuff, but some of that is also because the earlier estimates were people were perhaps trying to be optimistic. They were trying to 
not scare people too much or whatever, but the reality is the reality. We know enough to know that this isn't going to go away. It's something we're going to have to learn how to adapt to. We're going to have to live with coronavirus, this particular coronavirus, and hopefully we'll have a vaccine in the not distant future to help us live with it better. Right. That's definitely an issue. Definitely an issue. Professor, what courses do you teach? Are you at the medical school? Like, are, do you teach at the hospital or wh where do you teach? No, I teach here on the main campus. I teach a course called Compassionate Care for Underserved Populations. And I teach research methods to the PhD students. And I teach a course right now I'm teaching called Compassion in Healthcare. And it's, that's a survey course of health, various health professionals talking about how compassion manifests in their various forms of practice. So a lot of what I teach has to do with psychology. It's a lot of the psychological impacts that you have to think about. I am a health psychologist. My PhD is in health psychology. Even though I'm a nurse, my PhD is in psychology. Can you address, you know, our, our healthcare workers? I guess it's just a very stressful time, both for healthcare professionals and for people who become seriously ill. It seems it's a crisis, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. And um, it's a very, very difficult time for many of the healthcare professionals. And so, uh, you know, it's, as I said earlier, it's something, you know, I, from everything I understand, responses to this event among healthcare workers have ranged from like free-floating anxiety to anger to frustration. It's really important for us to remember that they're the ones that are there at the front lines helping us. And so whatever we can do to help them is important. I came across this quote from you to your students saying, never, never underestimate the power of your experience sure. working with patients and what nurses have to offer. Nursing brings to health research a valuable and unique perspective born of hours at the bedside working with patients compared to the perspectives of other health professionals. That's right. It's a, it's a powerful that's, that's the Well, it's that, I mean, and that's the reality is that, that in terms of doing healthcare research, uh, nurses are, one of the things, I, I don't know if you know this, but nurses are the most trusted profession. And not just the most trusted healthcare profession, but the most trusted profession. There was one year in the last 20 plus years where that wasn't true. And you can probably guess which year that was. I actually had the, the last year, I've had a couple of occasions where I had to trust nurses and I just, I'm just, was in awe of, the, of what, how they helped me. So I, I can't, yeah. what, 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 what was that one year? 20, 2001 firefighters because they walked, oh. they ran into the World Trade Center to save people. So my point is that nurses, we are the most trusted profession. And one of the reasons why I think that is the case is because nurses are engaged in behaviors that are so close and so in some ways intimate with our patients. You know, we help them deal with some of the most 
basic things that human beings don't ever expect they may have to deal with. They need help. You know, they're in tremendous pain and they need medication. They have no way of doing it. They don't know how to get the help. They're, you know, they need to use the bathroom. They need to do, you know, they can't breathe. They need help with breathing. And so we are there at the bedside and walking them through some very intimate and very profound experiences with patients. And I think that intimacy that nurses have in their relationship with their patients helps to give us, we, we have to earn that trust as we are engaging in that level of care. And I think as a profession, we have earned that trust, obviously, or we wouldn't be the most trusted profession. But it also gives us a very unique perspective on what's going on when you're dealing with somebody who is sick. How is it that, you know, what, is, what are the processes going on here? And this is how I got into health psychology. I started my career as a pediatric intensive care unit nurse. And what I saw in the pediatric intensive care unit profoundly impacted me. I saw families where you'd have a six-year-old boy struggling with asthma, you know, having a hard time breathing. You know, we'd give him his treatments. We'd put a line in him, give him his drugs that help open up his airways so he could breathe again, get him all settled, get him calmed down and able to breathe. And then I would see his mother come in super anxious, justifiably so, right? But mom's super anxious. And mom is so anxious, the boy picks up on the anxiety. He mm. picks it up. And guess what happens? He has a hard time breathing again. His breathing starts to get worse mm. because anxiety is the most contagious emotion there is. And so I saw these things and I thought to myself, I said, why is this happening? There's something going on here. And this is how I started getting interested in understanding the link between mental health and physical health. Mm-hmm. Because I saw that the mental health of our patients and their families seemed to be having an impact on the physical health of the children I was taking care of. And it was these kinds of observations and these kinds of experiences that that I noticed that really helped shape the way I became a researcher and how I've decided that that's what I really want to study. I want to understand that interface. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since that time, we now know that there is a very profound connection between our mental health and our physical health. We know that anxiety and depression can be associated with cardiovascular challenges and diseases. We know that post-traumatic stress disorder is associated with cardiovascular ailments and various other diseases as well. So we know that these mental health things do something to us. Um, and but we need to understand better what the process is. We need to know how exactly do they do that, and what does that mean? What are the interventions that we can develop to help prevent those negative emotions, those challenging emotions, from impacting our physical health? What can we do, and when's the best time to do it? How can we best protect our patients, especially when we're talking about in the aftermath of trauma? That's how I got drawn into this work, and that's what I meant when I said that nurses have a very unique perspective. We see things because of our presence at the bedside 
We see things in the patients, in the patients' families that mm. other health professionals do not see mm. in the same way with the same duration. And that gives us the unique perspective. Mm. And that's why health research, not just health research, but healthcare delivery and healthcare outcomes are better served if they take into account the perspective and the understanding that nurses bring to the table. How is the state of the nursing profession at this time? Is it underpopulated? Do we need more nurses? We definitely need more nurses. We absolutely need more nurses. Nursing is a profession that we wax and wane in terms of how many nurses we need to train. Mm-hmm. But for a long time in my life, recently especially, there's been more of a need than not a need. Right now, there's a huge proportion, and I don't know the exact proportion, the number, but it's a very large proportion. Millions of nurses are close to retirement. And Mm -hmm. so when they retire, they need to be replaced. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is because of that, there's so much for nurses to do, and there's Mm -hmm. so much need for for people to get into the field. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you look at the job outlook for nurse midwives, nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists, there's a 26% increase in demand over the next eight years for these jobs. Mm-hmm. Let me look at this other one. Hold on. Registered nurses. It, it's This is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, by the way. Yeah, the demand for registered nurses, 12%, much faster than average, increased demand. That's just the job outlook for registered nurses. So the demand is high. Demand is high. It's been high almost all of my life. And that's why we need to get more people into the field. It's also a very stressful field. So sometimes people leave. And that's why we need to put into practice steps, arrange and organize our healthcare system in a way that best utilizes our strengths and allows us to provide optimal care without burning nurses out, without leading to so much stress that people are ready to leave the profession. And that's a challenge. I'll put a shout out to my colleague, Dr. Miriam Bender, who is a healthcare workforce researcher, trying to understand the best way of creating care delivery models for nurses. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that need to be done to understand the best ways to provide care and protect the workforce, but we're working on it. It seems like a, another reason perhaps that nursing is the most respected profession is that it seems that most trusted, most, most trusted. trusted, most trusted is that you don't have a sense that nurses are making a ton of money that they're purely they're working hard and they're not getting rich doing what they're doing they're just there to serve that's an interesting perspective on it that's right that may be part of it i mean it's a decent living it's definitely a good living but you're not making millions of dollars a year as a nurse it is definitely a different kind of a profession in that sense but you know Because the workforce is being challenged the way it is right now, we need to make sure that we take care of the people who are there and help make sure that we protect people from this virus and 
protect them from burning out and help make sure that they have their needs met in the work environment so that we don't lose nurses. Dr. Allison Holman, professor at the Sue and Bill Gross School of Nursing, thank you very, very much for being with us and sharing your perspective today. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed this very much. Thank you to UCI health psychologist and nursing professor, Dr. Allison Holman, for her powerful perspectives on what nursing is. We are all coming to realize more and more as this coronavirus pandemic continues. Nurses are an integral and critical part of the battle at the most intimate level. Our hats off to every one of them each and every day. Here's a huge zot, zot, zot thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And just remember out there, everybody, support your local healthcare workers whenever possible. And don't forget, you can hear an encore presentation of this interview or any other UCI Conversations show from this academic year. Simply go to my podcast website at www.bostonmeyer.com. That's B as in Bravo, O-S-S as in Sierra, E-N as in November, M as in Mike, E-Y as in Yankee, E-R, www.bostonmeyer.com. You can also email me at kboss at kuci.org. would love to hear from you, and I will respond to you promptly. As always, thanks again to bluesman piano player Fred Kaplan. He has a true feel for the blues and provides my show theme music and show playout music every week. All of Fred's tunes come from his terrific solo CD, Signifying. Check it out. And now coming up next is Ash Kumar on Entrepreneur Nation, which looks at different aspects of the business world in 2020. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I've been your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer always working to bring you the latest from this amazing cornucopia of knowledge called the University of California at Irvine. You are listening to UCI Conversations at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Have a great evening. So long, everybody.